For those of us remaining here, we will be reading in Luke 1, uh, 26 today. Let me invite you to stand in honor of God's written word. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seen. Good morning, Christ community. My name is Pat. I'm one of five elders who currently serve this church, and it is a privilege, as always, to speak to you from God's Word. We've been looking over the last two weeks at Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled in Christ. This morning, our text focuses on the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with King David that's recorded in the book of 2 Samuel. It's one of those places where the forever reign of King Jesus is prophesied. So what we're going to do this morning is rather simple. We're going to look at the story in 2 Samuel where God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan. And then we're going to look at the story in the Gospel of Luke where the angel Gabriel proclaims the coming of King Jesus as a child. And finally, we'll take a step back and see what the text has to tell us about the everlasting king and his kingdom. Before we begin, let me pray for us again. Father, we do ask that you would, um, God, that you would be here present with us by your spirit, that you would teach us, that you would draw us by your word to worship you, God, as we see what you have done for us in Christ. Bless the teaching of your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we didn't read these verses, but we're going to start by looking back at 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn there with me, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the pew in front of you. We'd be happy to give that to you as a gift. We're going to start by looking at Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. It reads this. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So the ark of the Lord had finally been delivered to Jerusalem, and a house of cedar, which is basically a palace, was King David's residence. 
David was in a period of several years rest that the text says was rest from all of his surrounding enemies. In fact, the Lord was the one who gave him this rest. So David was apparently exceedingly grateful to the Lord for bringing him safely through much tribulation. And in his rest now, he must have felt rather sheepish as he compares his home to the place where God dwelled. David is in a palace and the Lord has a tent. So David, seeing what he perceives as a terrible injustice, wants to build God a house. He wants to construct the temple of God. So the prophet Nathan, who is with him and knows what David is thinking, as he compares their two dwelling places, he says to David, well, do whatever your heart wants, David, build God a temple. It made complete sense. It was a God-honoring thing to do. David wanted to give rest to God, to bless God for all that he had done for him. But then, that same night, God came to Nathan and basically told him to tell David not to build the temple. God's message to David, if you look at verse 4, is this. Would you build me a house to dwell in? It's a rhetorical question. Almost like, is that, is that really your plan? See, God goes on to remind David that he hasn't lived in a house since bringing his people out of Egypt. In fact, he says he's never even mentioned the idea of building a house to anyone. In other words, God is saying, this isn't my idea. I don't need it. Listen to what God says in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And then in verse 11, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You see what God is saying? David, thanks, but I don't need you to build me a house to rest. I have been with you every step of the way since I pulled you out of the pasture herding sheep. I've made you king. I've delivered you from your enemies. I am your God. I have taken care of you, and I'll continue to take care of you. I'm going to make your name great. In fact, God says, I am going to build you a house. I'm going to give you rest. Now, this is somewhat strange, given the context, because David already has a house, a palace, in fact. And so what's God doing? Well, look at verses 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, God has a better plan. God doesn't want to build David a vacation home. God wants to build David a forever home, a kingdom, a throne that will have no end ever. Now, we know this didn't happen in David's lifetime. David's son, Solomon, would reign after David, and when Solomon died, the kingdom would pretty much end. 
But God's words are so sure. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is the Davidic covenant. God will never take his steadfast love from the line of David, and David's throne will reign forever. So there's a lot more that we could say about that, but we're going to stop there. And we're going to fast forward to the Gospel of Luke. You can turn with me in your Bibles. This is the the verses that Tony just read. We're in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel Gabriel comes to proclaim the coming of Jesus, right? Just as he had proclaimed the coming of John the Baptist, who would make way for and point to Jesus. The sixth month here refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. Let me point out a couple of really important parts of this narrative, just from these verses. First, Luke makes reference to the fact that Mary was a virgin, okay? Now, I know growing up, I just thought the Virgin Mary was her name, Virgin Mary, That's Jesus' mother. That's just what you call her. It's in songs. It's written down. It wasn't until I became a Christian, and even then a while later, that I really understood the implications here. Mary was betrothed to Joseph at this time. Basically, that's like a really serious engagement that can only be annulled by a decree of divorce. The most important part here is that Mary was a virgin. She had no physical relationship with Joseph or any other man for that matter. The second important fact you need to see here is that Joseph, Mary's husband, and soon to be Jesus' earthly father, was of the house of David. David here, of course, referring to King David, who we just read about in 2 Samuel. I just attended, for the third year in a row, the Behold the Lamb of God concert this past Wednesday. And there's a song in that show called Matthew's Begats. It's an upbeat song that takes about four, four and a half minutes to quickly sing through the entire the entire liturgy of Joseph that, or I'm sorry, the entire lineage of Joseph that Matthew lays out in his gospel. And you eventually find out that Joseph is a descendant of David. You can likely already see the importance of this. Back in 2 Samuel, God said that he would raise up the offspring of David to make this forever kingdom. Let's continue in verse 30. Chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So why does the angel need to say, don't be afraid? Well, Mary was a young, lowly woman. It's likely that she was a young teenager, as that was the typical age of betrothal at this time. She was poor, she was uneducated, and more or less marginalized in her society. One pastor, Kent Hughes, once referred to her as a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. So an angel sent by God comes to a marginalized teenage woman, betrothed but not yet married, and says, Greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It doesn't take a wild imagination here to figure out that she must have been troubled. It must have been disconcerting. She probably was frightened. But then comes an astonishing announcement to Mary. 
Gabriel says this, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I can envision the shock of this young girl's face. First, Gabriel told her that she would conceive a son. And if we look down in verse 34, we see Mary's response. Well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She wasn't necessarily doubting Gabriel's word, but she was at least dumbfounded at how this was actually going to happen. Her question lets us into the fact that she took Gabriel to mean that she would become pregnant before marrying Joseph while still a virgin. And what's more, the angel was giving Mary the name of the child that she would bear, and his name was Jesus. Now, it's Christmas time, and this may sound benign to us. We know the child's name will be Jesus. We've heard this story many times. But for those of you who don't know exactly, the name Jesus means God saves, or the Lord is salvation. Matthew, in his gospel account, says this in chapter 1, verse 21, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, and what will this child named God saves be like? Well, look at verse 32 and 33. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel says a few things about this child whose name is God saves. First, he will be great. There's no qualification to his greatness. Jesus will be great. Period. This again sounds somewhat familiar to 2 Samuel 7. God said to David, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Second, Gabriel says, he will be called the son of the most high. The most high is the name that David uses for God, particularly a lot in the Psalms. By calling him the son of the most high, Gabriel is beginning to identify this child called God saves as both human and divine, both man and God. He says, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Mary, the nobody teenage woman, has an angel proclaim that she's going to bear a child while still a virgin, and the child will be called Jesus, God saves, and he will be king over God's people, and to his kingdom there will be no end. Imagine, imagine the look on her face. But there it is. Gabriel announces that this child will be king. But not just any king. He is the long-awaited king that God's people have been waiting for. Consider what was prophesied back in 2 Samuel. There's three connections. First, David is called the father of Jesus. God said in 2 Samuel that the king would be of the offspring of David. Second, Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. Back in 2 Samuel, God said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Finally, Jesus' kingdom will have no end. He will reign forever, which is what was foretold in 2 Samuel of the throne of David. So there's no doubt that Luke and other New Testament writers believed that this child named Jesus was the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. But how is this the case? How will the reign of Jesus be forever? How is it that no other king in David's line has fulfilled the covenant? Well, the simple answer is, from the point of conception, 
Jesus was and is unlike any king that has ever lived. And his kingdom is unlike any kingdom under any king who has ever lived. Gabriel's response to Mary's bewilderment on how she, a virgin, would bear a child gives us some insight into this. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, was going to come upon Mary and power from God the Most High, who was named this child's father, just verses before, was going to overshadow her. This is the Immaculate Conception. Mary would conceive a child not by earthly means, but by the very Spirit of God. And why is this so significant for this king? Well, as I said before, Jesus isn't like other kings. The virgin birth implies two very important things for us. Number one, it points to the deity of Christ. Being born of a woman points to his humanity, but being born of the Spirit and not by man points to his divine sonship. In one way, we're all sons and daughters of God. Paul makes that clear several times in his letters. However, Jesus was a son of the Most High in an utterly unique way. He was not conceived by the will of man, but he was begotten by the will of God and by God's power alone. There was a spirit of God who overshadowed Mary and gave her a child. God acted. The second implication the virgin birth preserves the sinless nature of Christ. Having not been conceived by man, the sin passed down through the seed of Adam was not passed on to him. He is the God-man who is sinless at birth, unlike any other king. And this, in part, is why Luke says, Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He is the Holy Son of God in every way. So Jesus is not just one king in the lineage of David. He's the final king, the everlasting king. Because Christ was without sin, it means two things. He not only has the power to deliver God's people from their enemies here on earth like David did, but he has the ability to deliver God's people from their ultimate enemy, the enemy of sin and death. Second, he does this ultimately by his resurrection from the dead. It's hard to separate Christmas from Easter. The child who was born to Mary sinless would one day take on our sin, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus is able to be the forever king because unlike David and unlike Solomon, unlike any king in all of creation, Jesus had no flaw, no blemish. He was without sin. When we look back at 2 Samuel, we read that God would discipline the kings that came after David, but that he would not, never withdraw his steadfast love from the line of David. He wasn't going to overlook sin, but he was going to maintain his promise to endure the throne of David forever. Let me read for us, it'll be on the screen, a portion of Psalm 89 where David actually helps us to understand more fully what God spoke to him back in 2 Samuel. 
Psalm 89, verses 28 to 37 says this. It's the Lord speaking. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Do you see the theme here? God is faithful. All of creation has been waiting for Jesus to be born. The saving one who God would send to finally deliver his people from all iniquity. To finally be the perfect king that they longed for. Jesus is that king. In his life of perfect obedience and perfect submission to God, he proved himself to be the one sent by God to deliver his people. As we move toward a close this morning, I want to take a bird's eye look at these two narratives and look at the nature of the everlasting king and his kingdom. So if we look back at 2 Samuel... David was, David was interested in building God a house. David wanted to serve God and give him rest. And that was a benevolent desire. I think it was a good desire, but God answered his desire with a very upside-down perspective. God was the provider. God was the one who would deliver David then and ultimately the line of David from their enemies. When God said he would build David a house, he meant that he would make a way for David and all of his descendants to rest, to rest from the pursuit of their enemies. But God wasn't just interested in winning the next battle. God was planning for an eternal rescue, an eternal rest. What we see in that narrative is a God who is abundant in grace, providing for David at the expense of himself. David did not force God's hand. David did not earn God's grace or his favor. God gave it freely, not according to David. God raised David up and God God covenanted with David to provide for him. God was the one at work. And it is God at work in Luke chapter 1, which is my favorite of the Christmas stories. If you look at it as a whole, what you see is something very surprising. God's faithfulness is clear like it's written in the psalm we just read. God was faithful to provide for his people. He kept his promise to David to cause his kingdom to be a forever kingdom. But he did it in a way that is very different than the way anyone would have expected. God came to a lowly woman at a seemingly random time in an unlikely way. The son of the Most High, who would be the forever king, came as a helpless child. There's a song that we sing here sometimes. It's called, This is Amazing Grace. And in that song is a refrain that asks, What other king leaves his throne? What other king leaves his throne? The chorus then sings, This is amazing grace, this is unfailing love, that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. We cannot save ourselves. We hear that a lot. We can't save ourselves. 
But that has never been more clear than when Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, departed his throne to be born as a child. What amazing grace. What amazing love he has for us that he would do that. You see, Jesus was already reigning supreme before he gave up his throne and by the Holy Spirit was born as a child. For 33 years, that child would live a sinless life, but not a life without pain, not a life without loss, without suffering, without hardship. See, the true king, King Jesus, gave up his very own life willingly so that you and I and everyone who would trust him would be part of the family of God, part of the royal family of the forever king. When Nathan spoke God's words to David in 2 Samuel, it wasn't assumed or likely even thought of that there would one day be one king who would reign forever. I doubt they were thinking that way. But that was God's plan. And when that king came, he did not come with a sword. He did not come with an army. He did not come with a battle cry. He came as a servant. That is the nature of the kingdom, and that is the way that God is ushering in his kingdom. It is God who serves us. It is God who came to give us rest. Christmas reminds us that the king of the universe did not come to be served. Rather, he came to serve. And the most significant way that we have seen his service to us is in a manger. Jesus threw off his power He threw off his majesty and he came to dwell with us so that ultimately he could sacrifice his own life for us. That, friends, is the everlasting king that we serve this morning. That is the everlasting king that we await when he returns to draw us in to his heavenly kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that Never more clearly have we seen the great love with which you loved us than in the act of humbling yourself to be born as a child, to live a life only to die on a cross for us. We thank you this Christmas that as we look at Christ born in a manger, God, that we see that great love. God, would you be with us this Christmas season? Would you help us to worship you in spirit and truth? We thank you for loving us to the point of death. In Jesus' name, amen.